Good morning, everyone. That's good. Good morning, uh, and welcome to the 2018 Actuarial Society's Annual Convention. <clears throat> My name is Garabo Murule, and it's a great privilege to be your MC and conference chair for the annual convention. I'm really excited to be here, and we're expecting over 1,400 attendees at the convention this year, which is why I've been actually announcing to everybody to please move into the center of each, each of the rows. Uh, so those who are new who are coming in, please, please move to the front. There's a lot of seats here. I'd also like to welcome the Society's stakeholders and international guests. There's the Director General, Gwebinkundla Konde, who's the, from the Department of Higher Education and Training. Our Deputy Governor, Francois Gruppe, from the South African Reserve Bank. Jonathan Mort, who's from the Actuarial Society's Disciplinary Committee. Shelley Lotz, from the South African Venture Capital and Private Equity Association. Stephanie Pillay, from the Financial Planning Institute of South Africa. My colleague, Laureen Makwanya, from the Actuarial Society of Zimbabwe. Ben Kemp, Adrian van Heerden, and Marjorie Nguenya, from the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries in the UK. Brian Brown, from the Casualty Actuarial Society in the US. And also, we're very pleased to welcome the following past presidents of the Actuarial Society. Janine Naslowski, Paul Troyens, Peter Temple, Roseanne Harris, and Temba Gamete. The Society is also especially grateful for the support from the convention sponsors, Jen Rhee, Hanover Rhee, RGA, SCORE, and Sunlam, and many thanks as well to all of the exhibitors and the sponsors at the relaxation stations, I think that's a new one, <laughs> the coffee bars, and the charging stations. I have a few housekeeping announcements before we get underway. So could everybody please kindly put your mobile phones on silent, although I know you'll always be, all of you will be uh, really active on the app. Um, the tea breaks and lunches will be served in exhibition halls one and two on level zero, so that's where most people registered. And if you have indicated that you have special dietary requirements, please notify one of the catering staff at the conventions. As you're listening to the presentations today, you can find the presentation summaries as well as the full papers on the convention website and the app. Uh, the PowerPoint slides and the audio recordings will be posted after the convention. You also may have noticed in front here our graphic illustrator on stage this morning, and she will be making a visual record of some of the convention proceedings. Now, given that the conference is in Cape Town, I feel like I have to make this announcement. Nicolene's illustrations will no doubt be amazing, but given that there have been certain court rulings which have been legalized previously banned substances for personal use, please resist the urge to request using the graphics she's going to produce to get a tattoo. Okay. Now, let's move on to our plenary, and I would like to uh, welcome our opening plenary speaker, Alan Peddle. He, uh, by way of introduction, let me cover some of the information in his biography, which you will, can read in full uh, in the app or in the handbook. Alan is a globally experienced healthcare actuary who played a leading role in health and wellness, product development, innovation, and strategy for the Discovery Group before moving to China in October 2015 as part of the joint venture between Ping'an and Discovery, where he's currently deputy CEO of Ping'an Health. Alan is an alumni of the University of Cape Town and a member of the Faculty of Actuaries, so that's two things we have in common. And at the end of Alan's address, if we have a bit of time, we'll take a few questions. Ni hao, Alan. <laughs> Hmm. 
All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, and Nihao is the correct greeting. Um, so, a few um, weeks ago, I was working uh, with some colleagues of mine in a place called Huangshan, uh, also known as the Yellow Mountain uh, region of China. Um, and it was a strategy session with, uh, with my Chinese colleagues. I was the only English-speaking guy in the room. And one of our guest speakers uh, was the chief uh, insurance officer of the Ping An Group, which I'll speak about a little bit later. Um, and in this discussion, uh, we really spoke about the future of, of the businesses, uh, the competitive dynamics in China. And this particular individual, um, amongst uh, the many businesses he's responsible for, is Ping An Life. The Ping An Life Insurance Company has 1.4 million sales agents. Um, that one in a thousand Chinese people work in the sales and distribution force. And needless to say, this uh, distribution force is an unbelievable asset and has been fueling the growth of Ping An Group uh, for many years and certainly a distribution channel that we are very keen to make uh, the best use of. This individual um, turned around and he said, look, you know, he said, <laughs> to quote, he said, I'm an old school sales guy. You know, I believe that insurance is sold, not bought. I believe that the relationship between an agent and the customer is paramount. Um, and I really do believe that this, uh, this sales force has been an unbelievable asset for our business. But he said he's also had a watershed moment. Okay? And he believes that the future is not going to be exactly the same as the past. And in order to illustrate his point, he, um, he told us a story. This was the best picture I could find. It's not exactly the one that I wanted to... Uh, the, it doesn't tell the story exactly the same way. He said he was sitting alone at a restaurant, high-end restaurant in Shanghai or Beijing or one of these cities. He, saw, he said he saw a young couple walk in, in their 30s, probably a little bit better dressed than the ones I see here, suit tie, perfect target market for a kind of a sophisticated financial services product, a health insurance product, maybe a fancy credit card. Um, he said he noticed they walked in. They were on their phones as they came in. Um, they may well have ordered from their phones because you don't really need paper menus in many uh, restaurants in China any longer. And they stayed on their phones and their food arrived. And when their food arrived, it was the first time that they spoke to one another. Right? Then they uh, sort of compared food, probably took a photograph of their food and posted on their WeChat moments, because you do that in China as well. Um, and then he said they spent the rest of the evening on their phone. And then he said he noticed uh, in that particular event that you know, all these kind of couples, friends, whatever the case were, were coming in, and they were spending more time on their phones than they were talking to one another. And then, and this is not a new phenomenon, but we see it specifically in China. Everywhere you go, you can see that relationships are being driven through these kind of electronic interfaces. And he said at that point, he realized that yes, it's true, relationships are going to be key to the sales process of financial products going forward. But the nature of those relationships is potentially going to be put completely disrupted by technology in the future. So what I'd like to spend a bit of time on today is to talk about how these massive organizations, and Ping An Group is truly a massive organization, are operating in one of the fastest changing technology environments in the world inside an incredibly active and vibrant economy. 
And I think for all of us, there are lessons for us to learn from observing how these companies are reacting to the competitive dynamics that are going on in China. And I really do believe that China can tell us many uh, interesting insights in terms of how financial services industries can be disrupted going forward. So just a short story about myself. Yes, I went to school down, down the road, I was at UCT, I was at Saks, um, you know, I, I've attended a couple of these conferences before in, China, in, 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 uh, uh, in South Africa, and in 2015, me and my family moved off to China, um, and we've had uh, many, many interesting adventures while we've been there. Um, obviously, my job really is to work with the Pingan Group with our subsidiary in health insurance and figure out how we can take the core skills and technology specific relating to health insurance uh, and vitality and product design and, and transfer that into the, the Chinese environment. That's a picture of me at Harbin with my family. Here's a picture of my kids behaving really badly uh, in some part of China. And, um, you know, we've had many adventures. Um, the most commonly asked question I get asked about ch from my South African colleagues is about what I eat in China. So I want to introduce you to the sea cucumber, which has got to be the most unappetizing foodstuff I have been presented with in China so far. Uh, it turns out it looks worse than it is. Um, but it is true, Chinese uh, do have a tendency to eat a lot of things which challenge the South African palate. I've also been very lucky in the sense that Discovery today is one of the, the largest South African companies with a significant stake uh, in, in China. Um, and I was lucky enough to go along and be invited with our president and several other uh, African leaders who visited China a few months ago. I got to go to the Hall of the People, um, got to drive through the, the streets of Beijing um, uh, where there was no traffic because they cleared the traffic for us. So I felt very important. Um, but the reality is that what I've seen in my time in China is that we really, um, this is an economy at a point of incredible vibrancy. And of course, incredible influence from the state down into various sectors of society. And I'll, I'll touch on that particular concept a little later. Sorry, I just want to grab the order. Oh. Um, so, um, given my three years of experience in China, um, and really, uh, I, I want to put a few kind of hypotheses or uh, insights across. I mean, the first key insight that I want to make is that... Um, China is going to be really important uh, going forward. But I really feel as if many people, and I base this on my experience in the UK, in the US, uh, even parts of Southeast, Southeast Asia, many people don't pay enough attention to what's going on in China. And there's huge information gaps. I want to tell you about three cities where we'll be opening branches over the next while. Here's Qingdao, 9 million people, GDP growth 7.5%. Hangzhou, um, Chongqing, 17 million people in the city, 25 million people in the metropolitan district, uh, growth rate expected to be about uh, 10%, probably the biggest city that most people I know of have never heard of. Right? Now, it's fascinating to me that when you look at the economies of these individual cities, they outstrip entire countries that other people have heard of. Uh, you know, off the top of my head, I've seen a map where people match these, these cities or these provincial districts uh, to particular cities around the world, Ecuador, Greece, uh, Austria, places that you and I 
are aware of. We maybe have a vague mental picture of where they fit into the world, what their role is, some of the key uh, characteristics of these places. But we don't tend to, from outside, understand these incredibly significant economic zones and what's happening. Everyone knows about Uber. Uber's in the news all the time. It's a big attention-grabbing company. But by comparison, in the kind of global economic front, how many people know about Diddy? How many people are studying the business strategy of Diddy? Despite the fact that the impact of Diddy in terms of passengers, in terms of local taxi industries, in terms of local regulatory issues between provincial governments and the drivers and the organization, um, uh, Diddy in many levels competes with or potentially exceeds uh, the impact of Uber in terms of its, 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 global, uh, its global impact. Um, even our partner company, Ping An Group, rated by Forbes in 2017 as uh, the most powerful financial services company in the world, the life insurance company in 2017 was ranked as the second biggest in China and the second biggest in the world, um, uh, and, and potentially soon to be the first, uh, shooting up the world, uh, the Forbes 500 rankings. But a company that I don't think gets nearly as much attention from a global financial services audience thinking about how big financial services companies are competing in the, on the global stage. Now, I'm not 100% sure what causes this lack of understanding. Uh, it could be said that the U.S. companies or the, the global uh, big names are just much better at international communication. Of course, language is a big issue. You could even argue that for political reasons, companies on the Chinese side or on the Western side don't necessarily make these huge efforts to, uh, to kind of really improve communications. But I really feel that part of my job today is to urge people to start paying more attention to what's happening in China, to start to learn about these companies, about these regions, because they are certainly insights, right? Then they're insights in terms of things that could change in the dynamics of our industries going forward. Um, just to reiterate the point, um, the simple version of this slide is that by 2030, The Economist here is predicting that 35% of the Chinese population will be in what they define as the upper middle class. Now, 35% of about 1.4 million people, 1.4 billion people, is 450 to 500 million. The U.S. economy, uh, the U.S. population is about 325, people, 325 million people. So we're talking about enormous influence into the global stage of a very powerful, rapidly growing middle class um, who are going to make a very dramatic impact on the world stage. Um, you know, you can look at all kinds of statistics. I'm not going to reiterate the point. The, the cold, hard reality is that there's an argument to that China today may already be the world's number one economy and certainly is on track to massively outclips the U.S. in the future. So let's go uh, back to kind of some of my millennials, some of these phone-using people uh, in the middle class, and let's do a lot more sort of storytelling about what they're doing and how they are potentially disrupting and changing the financial services industry. Um, so uh, this is a photograph of the, the same group. Um, let's talk a little bit around their experiences. 
So the first area of financial services disruption is in payment technology. So this story is kind of self-explanatory. It's from the FT. Um, and effectively, it tells a story of a young woman who left China in 2013. And by the time she came back in 2016, she effectively realized that cash and cards were dead. When I go out in China today, um, I, I only use my credit card when I travel outside of China. <laughs> um, I don't carry cash. Um, apart from a few notes in my wallet, which is a hangover from my previous experiences. And that's not a unique experience for me as being a kind of an outsider. This is the cold, hard reality of every way, day, everybody's daily interactions in China. So, you know, for example, you'll go to a street vendor, you'll see the, um, the QR code. So the one on the left is WeChat, the one in the middle is Alipay, and the one on the right is the store account. And I show people pictures like this, and they say, no, but we have those. That's uh, Apple Pay, that's SnapScan whatever the case is. But if there's a threshold, you know, when people genuinely stop using cash and credit cards, um, I don't truly believe that that threshold has been met anywhere else in the world other than China. Um, uh, there's huge volumes of trade online, but the, this picture I thought was the most interesting. I once spoke at a SOA convention in Kuala Lumpur. And I was introduced by um, the Malaysian uh, a person in charge, and he said, this is our speaker from China. In China, even the beggars use cell phones to, to get money. Okay, he was joking. There's hardly any beggars in China. <laughs> but, but then I found this picture. Now, this picture is taken in Xi'an. It's the, the city where the ancient terracotta warriors are. Um, and what it shows, it's difficult to make out, but this is a street performer. And what he's doing is he's done his show and he's holding up his QR codes so that the people around him can scan and pay him for his performance. If he put a hat down or a box down expecting coins and notes, he would have gone home with no money. Right? Now when I say that change has happened, it is immense. And these millennials, these young Chinese I'm speaking about, have really undergone a financial services revolution. And it's happening in our business as well. So to give you an example, um, Ping An Health Insurance launched our own app about 18 months ago. In the space of 18 months, we've grown to about 4.5 million users, okay, which makes it a middle-sized app in China. Um, now, one of the amazing things for us is that it was a no-brainer to put a feature on the app where I can allow my customers to complete the sale on their mobile phones. And it's easy for us to build because all the underlying infrastructure is there. The trust is there. The consumers have already preloaded whatever transactional mechanisms they need. It's incredibly low cost for us to put that feature into our app. And not only that, our customers would be astounded if they weren't able to buy our products on the app. And not only that, we can send links out through WeChat, the equivalent of WhatsApp, where people can click through and they can complete their transactions on their mobile phones. And if there's an agent involved, there's recons and they can earn their commissions and all these kinds of things. And it's all done through a mobile interface. The last study I looked at said that 10% of insurance policies are, the sales are completed through the, the internet, through these mobile technologies. And when they talk about the internet, they really mean mobile phones, because no one in China uses a web page any longer. So what this really speaks to is a kind of a real 
like breakthrough in the way that the financial services industry is working in China. Um, and, um, you know, often when you speak about technology, you speak about the cutting edge in fintech or whatever the case might be, people tend to think of, of Silicon Valley. What we've seen and what I fundamentally believe is that there's some core areas where China, where China has already overtaken Silicon Valley and some core areas where they are very soon going to. This really speaks about uh, certainly e-commerce, mobile payment. China is by far the world leader. Um, uh, China is taking, staking out leading positions in AI, big data, massive investments into uh, kind of digital platform types of companies. Um, and that is proving to be an astounding disruptive force for the financial services industry. Um, as these economies develop, what it does is it enables other businesses to come into being. So some of you may know the stories of the yellow bikes and the orange bikes in China, Mobike and Ofo. Effectively, these were industries that came, they came into life in 2016 where all of a sudden overnight the orange bike company put 50,000 bikes down in, in, in Shanghai, another 50,000 down in, in, in Beijing. You can find your bike on your phone, you unlock it through your, um, through your app, um, you can cycle wherever you like, you can close the lock, you get charged the equivalent of two rand um, for half an hour of use and the bike goes back onto your app and you can find them on the map. Now bike share in and of itself has been around before, but what happened in China was that you had these 100,000 bikes on the road. Three weeks later, you had the yellow company putting another 50,000 bikes down in each of the cities. Then all the other cities in China opened up. Then the red company arrived and the blue company, and we had an entire cycle of boom and bust. All happened. Now it's kind of stabilized back at this, um, this, this kind of two-bike level. But the thing is, because there was underlying sophistication of the customers, the customers were ready to do instant adoption. They were easy-to-use payment mechanisms um, for, uh, for the, the companies to utilize. There was mass investment, um, and there was a very, very quick move. And these businesses are predicated on the idea that they're data platforms, and they can learn about the users, they can encourage engagement with the users, and that, in turn, becomes an investable asset. And there's many more things I could say about this industry, um, and if there's time, I may come back to it. The, the, the key thing for us as a financial services company, though, is to worry about what this means when you've got these mega players in the platform space. Now, Alibaba are the guys who started as a payment company, um, and now process for your average user anywhere between four and six payments a day. And they're learning about where people are shopping, what their locations are, how much they can spend. They've got ties into their financial services. They know that when they put certain products on their, on their interface, what types of people will buy which things. WeChat started off similar to WhatsApp, started off as a, a messaging service but has its own payment services, um, allows companies to set up at very low cost these little online stores, um, and once again is ransacking all their user data to find out who their interests are, what their social circles are, where they're spending money, what they're doing, which companies are, are popular, which ones are not. And for us as a financial services company, the key problem for us is how do we brace for the fact that both of these companies have come directly into the, the financial services space in China. 
Our rivals are selling products on their platforms. These companies have developed insurance subsidiaries. Um, now, I know people talk about Alphabet and Amazon and uh, whatever, these, these mass companies talk about the potential threat to the insurance envi environment. In China, it is happening today. I've lost actuaries who've gone to go work in the pricing teams for both of these companies, thinking about how they can utilize all of this data to develop their insurance products. So what I'm going to talk about then is I'm going to go all the way back to Ping An. So this enormous company with subsidiaries in banking, in short-term insurance, in life insurance, health insurance. And think about how this company is preparing for the challenges faced by, by, by these omni-powerful kind of platform uh, competitors. So the first thing that they've done I said Ping An Group is encouraging the subsidiary companies very heavily to start thinking like a platform company. To start saying that at the end of the day, we have 500 million or so online users across all of our subsidiaries. They're generating huge amounts of traffic. They're, potentially, we can provide huge amounts of value to them. But as an organization, we've got to be thinking about how we maximize each of those inter interaction points and how do we build up the platform and create more opportunities for more engagement. And at the end of the day, each of the companies, in a way, is starting to say, you're going to be rewarded by the organizational structure to drive traffic and cross-pollinate across the businesses the insights that you learn and also the opportunities to cross-sell. So I'm going to give you one, I'm going to go all the way back and talk about those 1.4 million agents in Ping An Life. And I'm going to talk about the fact that their customers are these people who are operating and living their lives on an online environment. Ping An Life has realized that as they hire new agents, each agent is coming on board. Each of these agents is a millennial. Each of those agents is coming on with anywhere between 200 to 400 social media contacts. And Ping An, as a group, has developed strategies and tools to help and train the agents to load those or, or introduce those uh, clients, their, their, their social media contacts, into what they define as interest groups. Now, interest groups are very heavily studied. Uh, and there's a recommender engine saying if a person is 35, a certain profile male living in a certain city is probably interested in cars, for example. Or he may be interested in healthcare, he may be interested in overseas travel, whatever the case is. So they create these interest groups. Then what they do is, is the Ping An group will load the agent with sources of material that can be passed into these interest groups um, where they study the responsiveness rates, the responsiveness rates to different layers of content, the meaning, the tone, to improve the quality of material. Some of it's informational, the vast majority of it in fact is informational, but some of it is also commercial. Well, they'll guide the agent into saying when people respond in a particular way, you should invite them onto the Ping An Good Doctor platform because they're interested in healthcare. Or you should offer them this link to this financial services product we have relating to the car. And sometimes they might be very low value policies. But the objective is always to invite these customers onto the consolidated Ping An platform with the aim of growing a user base, of competing at the platform level. 
Now, what's been quite fascinating for me is how the business is encouraging this mode of thinking across a whole realm of people who have traditional insurance mindsets. You're training your uh, agency heads to think like an internet company. You're training your risk and compliance team to think about ways that we can generate more value uh, at a platform level. The other interesting conceptual change is that I find that Ping An has started uh, developing an approach to data where effectively the internal uh, uh, mantra is that data is equivalent to capital. And that every single business leader in the Ping An group is encouraged to think about how they can acquire more data, how they can build the data banks, how they can improve the tools for utilizing the data banks, that the data in and of itself has a kind of an intrinsic value. So one example in this case is how Ping An has built a business which provides administration services to the social health insurance programs in China. So they learn about healthcare data. Um, they, it's all anonymized data, so you know there's no way that you can use a specific piece of information to underwrite or any of those exciting things. But, and, and needless to say, these cities do not pay much in terms of the services they're being offered. It's an incredibly low-margin, high-intensity business. But Ping An has chosen to invest in this business because they believe that the data itself has intrinsic value and that other companies in the group can develop profiling. They can understand health cost differences between cities. They can understand network differentiators between cities. And it's an area of work that we as Discovery have certainly been very involved in helping Ping An with, this idea of modeling out the value of healthcare data to improve the analytics engines that are underlying um, a lot of the capability in this space and fits very neatly in this prospect of how do you compete with these platform companies with their own data assets. Fundamentally, at the highest levels in Ping An, there's a sense of saying that if you don't focus and build up your data, you are going to be eaten up by the competitors who have bigger data pools than you. Um, And it's a kind of a sense of urgency and paranoia inside of this business. What Ping An has also done um, is Ping An has identified a couple of core technologies um, and effectively said these are going to be game-changing technologies for our our business and our industry over the next uh, five to ten years. The ones they're particularly focused on in AI, biometrics, big data, cloud, and blockchain. And what they've done is they've really gone out, they spend about a percent of their top-line revenue on building up R&D capabilities specifically uh, uh, located in these uh, these areas. They've they've hired some of the founders of the blockchain, uh, the early blockchain methodologies. They're ransacking the top MIT schools to find all the Chinese guys who've gone and studied there for many years, written PhDs, invited them back into China with very high packages. And they've devoted huge amounts of uh, of energy to becoming world leaders in specific segments of this technology. These are big bets. They've been willing to make the bets without the business case being clear. And then what's really interesting is an organizational strategy 
is that they, they develop strengths in these businesses, but they force the businesses themselves, sorry, in, the, in their technology application, they force the business leaders to come up with use cases for each of these technologies. So in other words, the cycle's almost the other way around. They'll invest in biometrics and voice recognition. Um, they'll invest in capabilities that can recognize people instantly. And then they go out and they find the business case. So as a, I'll give you some very quick examples. The microloans company in Ping An today um, has basically shut down 90% of their branches and they've shifted entirely online. Chinese customers who want a small loan can go online and they have a video interview um, through their phones. In the background, the software is doing all the biometric and fraud verifications to ensure that this person is correct. Of course, they're recording the transaction, which they use for, for, uh, for, for other purposes, training purposes later. They've developed a kind of um, um, micro-expressions program to really help the salesperson identify when the client is uncomfortable, potentially not happy with the answers they're giving and develop new pathways of interviews to kind of use this to guide the process of applying their loans. Um, uh, what they do with the data afterwards, um, which is uh, applications of AI, is they can then have machines that run through these interview and sales processes to make sure that the salespeople are following the correct protocols because they have language processing, uh, the machines can determine whether certain topics were followed, uh, whether certain disclosures were made, and they can use that to create a kind of a remedial process. Um, there are a whole range of other examples um, of applications of technology across Ping An Group. Um, uh, so um, I'm just off the top of my head, <laughs> sorry, a momentary blank. Um, so, um, so, so, so one other area that we've been really fascinated with is um, the applications in um, AI related to uh, 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 what we call like risk and compliance monitoring. So. The Ping An Group, and this is really, to me, a really interesting case as to how uh, the central direction of the group um, has focused on, on, on use cases. So in the risk and compliance area, Ping An Group has, has an enormous bill each year related to disputed legal cases, particularly in property and casualty. So there's an accident, there's a dispute as to whether or not the particular uh, case needs to be paid. What they've done... Um, and, and sorry, and China's got a very distributed legal system. So there's thousands of different places, thousands of different lawyers. Uh, each judge has these personal preferences in terms of how they tend to adjudicate cases. What they've built is a, a predictive engine which effectively searches through all the legal cases and creates a recommendation engine as to whether or not given a particular case in a given environment with a given judge with a given set of lawyers, what the probability of success is on a legal case. Um, and makes recommendations as to whether or not it's smart to settle a case up front, maybe seek out a different lawyer or whatever the case is. They've managed to reduce the head count of lawyers in their head office by about half, replaced with data engineers, which is an interesting exercise, um, and, um, and apparently have reduced their overall uh, legal bills dramatically. Now, my personal view is, and, and the reason I use that case, is I'm not sure that that group of people who head up that legal area 
would have been forced into thinking about the applications of AI unless there wasn't some top-down instruction which saying, look, we have these capabilities. You need to go out there and figure out how that's done. Similarly, the head of the agency force may never have developed that uh, social application training system that I spoke about earlier if there hadn't been some sort of top-down direction saying, here are some technologies which we're very good at. Okay? You have to think about the disruptive factors in this business. You have to come up with a use case. Um, and people inside the ping and management structure who succeed uh, tend to get tend to move up. And people who don't respond, it doesn't matter how much their traditional sales model is, if they haven't come up with an application of AI and sort of performed according to the, the KPI structures of Ping An Group, will tend to fall behind. Um, so, um, so, you know, from my perspective, a way of kind of summarizing where I'm at is to say that Ping An is an example of an enormous company, which many people you know, don't know about. Um, that is confronted with very real technology challenges, which many of us probably worry about, but maybe in the abstract sense, you know, three years from now, five years from now. Ping An is facing those problems today. And Ping An's response, in a way, can be summarized by those kind of three points that I made. First of all, to start thinking about their company in a similar way to uh, the big platform companies. Lay out the data, find the users, drive people to our platforms, think about ways that we can encourage sales, think about ways that we can encourage engagement even if there's no direct commercial value. The second point is think about acquiring data and how you can use it and drive that from the top down and make sure that's a core uh, competency of the business. And the third point, um, which is interesting, is identify disruptive technologies and master them, even if the business case isn't clear today. Um, okay, so then, you know, just wrapping it all up in a way, so what do I think this means for, um, in our South African context um, and maybe some learnings? I think there's maybe two or three things. The first point is that, you know, Chinese business is a very interesting top-down management style. And Chinese government is a very top-down management style. They set aggressive targets. They chase those targets. Of course, they lead to all kinds of inefficiencies. So this is what happened with some of the bike companies, for example. And we see it in many other industries. The Chinese uh, uh, commercial environment is swamped with overcapacity in certain areas. And that's one of the byproducts of having these top-down management structures. But at the same time, what also happens is these businesses are thinking very aggressively about the future and making big plays. And so there's an argument that says, you know, really, if... If they're really looking for this kind of super fast technology innovation, um, is China going to go there and why might it get there faster than other parts of the world? Well, there are a few things. I mean, I think education is one of the cornerstones to Chinese, uh, the, the, some of the elements of Chinese success. Um, and, I, you know, I put that up as maybe my third big insight from learning in China. I find that in and amongst the people that I work with, there's a very, very deep passion for self-learning. Um, I, I was astounded by a story. One of my colleagues, um, he's a head of department, an actuary. Um, he, um, he regularly sets up self-learning groups with his colleagues where they use WeChat to lecture one another on new topics. So it might be a data science topic. It might be a new machine learning algorithm. Um, I've interviewed people who, as a hobby, have uh, sort of self-studied Python. And that's, you know, just 
out of interest, um, uh, without a specific idea of how that would apply in their, in their industries. We find people who study not only, um, uh, 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 sorry, many students of business cases, for example. And what I find particularly fascinating in this point is that these, um, my colleagues in China and other parts of Asia are very aware of the pace of change. And there's kind of a deep-seated anxiety in some ways that any one of us might wake up and find ourselves obsolete in three years, in five years' time if we're not constantly focusing on this idea of becoming and maintaining our sort of technology and uh, professional expertise in particular areas. Um, what's also quite interesting on this slide is I think that in China I find a very strong view that entrepreneurship is the key to success. Um, and there's a kind of a, a celebration almost of entrepreneurial culture uh, in China, which seems strange in a traditionally communist society, but um, uh, certainly it's a topic worth, uh, worth thinking about. Um, where the state comes into it is that the state has also done this top-down planning thing as an identified core competencies, AI, big data, and provides immense support to industry that invests in these particular industries. And I think potentially a lesson for South Africa in the idea of saying what are two or three core areas of strategic advantage that we want to maintain and actually allow the government to drive those, uh, uh, those environments. Um, of course, there's other factors which are difficult for us to replicate. Um, the use of smartphones in China is extraordinary. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. We don't have the penetration here. We don't have 50-year-olds who will happily pick up a phone tomorrow and try a new payment, uh, a, a new payment methodology. Um, of course, the fact that China has this enormous uh, homogenous society and, and that in turn driving huge amounts of data um, means that I think China will maintain this technology edge. But maybe the learning for us here in South Africa is a sense of saying that there's opportunities, I believe, fundamentally. If we spend time learning about China, going through the language barriers, or spending time understanding all of these things, there's an opportunity for us to leverage expertise that is coming out of China. And I think many of these tools um, uh, you know, have applications in our businesses. Um, so really, that's it. Thank you very much. Um, cool. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alan. That's actually great because you've given quite a bit of time for questions oh, and I? hopefully oh, there's uh, quite a number of questions uh, that will come up. So if anybody has a question, uh, please raise a hand and uh, there should be some